May the church say amen. Amen. And I will dwell in your house forever. <laughs> amen. Knowing that truth as a Christian really helps put life in perspective, doesn't it? Knowing that though we do walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because when this life is over, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. And all of this will be done with. And all of this will be over. And there will be no more tears of pain and sorrow. There will be no more bad news. <laughs> there will be no more tests. No more negative results from tests. There'll be no more phone calls given the results of those tests. There'll be no more holding the hands of loved ones with tears in your eyes. But I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In all of God's glory, in all of his perfections. Amen? Praise the Lord for that. Praise God for that. <clears throat> we, as a church, are walking through. <clears throat> this is my segue to get myself together. <laughs> We're walking through articles of faith. And we are... Only on article of faith number three, there are 12 of those. If you're visiting with us, we're so grateful that you're here. This is a great time to be visiting East Aboga. For every Sunday, we are covering the articles of faith that we have, basically proclaiming what we believe as a church. And so today is article of faith number three. These articles of faith come from the original articles of faith that was written uh, when the church was founded on November 7, 1835, you can see that original document over here uh, to my left, to your right, uh, in the picture frame, and uh, you can read those. But in your worship guide, you see Article of Faith number three, and it says, We believe in the fall of Adam, in which he became corrupted, defiled, and guilty under the curse of God's law, and that all his posterity have partaken of his nature by ordinary generation and are subject to the same penalties, being under the same curse, and that, and that he nor they are able to extricate themselves therefrom by their own works. We talk a lot about sin, and the reason for that is is because we are good at it. People tend to talk about things they're good at. <laughs> and we're good at sin. We are born into sin, and we'll talk about that in a minute. 
And so from this pulpit, you hear preaching from the scriptures about sin. You can go to other, other pulpits or podiums or tables, and you may not hear as much about sin. And that's okay. I, I don't have to answer for any of those, but behind this desk, I do have to answer for. And behind this one, we will talk about sin and how destructive sin is. Sin is real, and it's a daily struggle for you, and it's a daily struggle for me. Listen, there's no one in this room or on campus today or anybody that would listen online that could ever make a statement, I don't struggle with sin. Well, you're already struggling with sin to make that kind of statement. Because one, there is pride in your heart, two, and you're lying. I mean, put it pretty blunt, you're just lying. You do struggle with sin. We all do. We all do. We have our struggles. And so what is the big deal? Why does the Bible speak a lot about sin? You want to know why we preach a lot about sin? Because the Bible talks a lot about sin. You're born into sin. That's your nature. When given the choice to do right or wrong, your tendency is to do wrong. Every time. I'm not saying you do wrong every time. I'm just saying that's your tendency. And we'll see that in just a minute. That's not my opinion. I think I could have formed that opinion without the scriptures, just in my own life. Because my tendency is to go down the path of destruction. And so we read in the scriptures. So what's the big deal? What does it matter? Why talk about our sin and our separation from God? Pastor Mike, why don't you just get up there and preach messages that are encouraging? Tell us how to walk out of here and have a good attitude and, and uh, how to be a good citizen, how to, you know, go out and do good. Get, give me, just give me three ways to be a, a good little old Christian every day. Why can't you do that? Well, there's no way that's possible until you fully realize who you are. You've got to know who you are. What's the big deal? The Bible doesn't uh, talk a lot about the animals or the plants. Do they sin? What about them? Why is it just humans? Well, if you turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. There is a lot of scripture reference. We won't stand for everyone, but we will for this one. This is the beginning one. So if you can, if you'll stand with me. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Why is this the big deal? God is forming man He out of the dust of the ground. And then we see in chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground, and then look what he did. And breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. You know what this means? God himself breathed the breath of life into you, into man. He didn't do that with animals. He didn't do that with plants. He didn't do it with rocks or mountains. He did it with you. He breathed the breath of life into you. This is why it's such a big deal to talk about sin. Because the moment God breathed the breath of life into man, 
This made man a spiritual being with the capacity for not only serving God, but having fellowship with God. See, the animals don't have fellowship with God. They can't. The plants don't have fellowship with God. They can't. But you and I can. And this is why the idea of sin is such a big deal. Because that sin has separated your fellowship with God. It has separated you from Him. And the rest of Scripture teaches how God and everything that He's done is redeeming you back to Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Scriptures. Lord, for Psalm 23. What a great gospel song. That Lord, even when we do walk through the valleys, we don't have to fear any evil. Because you're with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Boy, what a great encouragement that is, Lord. And thank you, Lord, that one day we will dwell in your house forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God formed man... It's the only thing that God formed. Uh, Everything else God spoke into existence. He spoke the light into existence and there was light. He spoke uh, the earth into existence and there was the earth. He spoke everything else into existence, but not with man. He formed man. He didn't just speak man, he formed man. And he went a little further when after he formed man, he breathed the very breath of God into his nostrils. He didn't do that with plants. He didn't do that in animals or anything else that we know of. He did that with man. And the reason he did that is because God had a desire to have fellowship with God, with him. And we know that sin has corrupted that. We'll see that in just a minute. This causes us to be spiritual beings. We have the capacity for serving God and having fellowship with Him. No other creature can make that statement. So this means, very briefly, that nothing and no other creature can have fellowship with God now or in eternity except for human beings. Do you catch what I'm saying? Okay, No animals, your dog, and all that. You know, I know we love them. But God didn't breathe into their nostrils. Will there be some animals in heaven? The Bible says the lion will lay down with the lamb. God allowing that to happen. But I don't think there's going to be a bunch of dogs and cats running around. I just don't think so. I'm pretty sure Scripture backs that up. In the first part of the article of faith, it says, and we'll take this section by section, It says, we believe in the fall of Adam. We believe in the fall of Adam. As a church at East Aboga, we believe in the fall of Adam. You see, the scripture reference there in Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees of the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Of course, what does the serpent do? No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat 
When you eat it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman said that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the moment that sin entered the world. God said no. Man desired to do things his own way. And all we like sheep have gone astray, each one to our own way. And we chose to do so. We chose to do so. Man blamed it on woman. Woman blamed it on the serpent. But you know what the truth is? It's their own fault. The sufferings and the sin in our own life are not because of anything else other than our own sinful desires, Paul says in Galatians. It's your own sinful desires that cause you to sin. So we believe in the fall of Adam. You go a little further, in which he became corrupted, defiled, and guilty under the curse of God's law. Look at the scriptures, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time, the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid from the Lord. You know why? Sin separates us from God. And that's exactly what is happening. I've always preached that. The scriptures always taught that. Sin separates you from God. And we see the very first time sin separating God's creation from him. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid then he asked who told you that you were naked did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from the man replied the woman you gave me she did it she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it's her fault so the Lord God asked the woman what is this you have done and the woman said it wasn't me I didn't do it. The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. Look at verse 17. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. Listen. This is the part of the article of faith in which he became corrupted, defiled, guilty under the curse of God's law. The ground is cursed because of you. You know what that means? And everything that comes from this ground is cursed because of you. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. Number one, we believe that Adam, we believe in the fall of Adam. And because of that, we believe Adam in which he became corrupted, defiled, and guilty under the curse of God's law. Because of the sin of Adam... The ground is cursed, and everything that comes from the ground is now cursed, defiled, guilty, corrupted. We move on. And, all, and that all his posterity, in the article of faith, and that all his posterity, that word meaning all future generations of people, 
and that all his posterity have partaken of his nature by ordinary generation and, and. It wouldn't be as bad if it just stopped there. And are subject to the same penalties under the same curse. So the same curse that God gave Adam that day is the same curse that you and I are under. You're cursed. You're defiled. We're corrupted. And we are under the same curse under God's law. This is the article of faith that these faithful men and women wrote. I think they've done it beautifully. We've talked about this in staff. I I think the, the terminology they have used is just phenomenal. I think they've just done a wonderful job, and I think every bit of it, every bit of it is is biblically sound. So not only did Adam fall in which he became corrupted, defiled, and guilty under God's curse, but all of his posterity, many all future generations of people after Adam, have partaken of his nature by ordinary generation and were subject to the same penalties under the same curse. I want to share with you two things about sin. One, we call inherited guilt. Inherited guilt. Uh, This means we are counted guilty because of Adam's sin. Inherited guilt. We are counted guilty because of Adam's sin. You are guilty because of Adam. Guilty as charged because of Adam. We see in the scriptures in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. That's what that means. Inherited guilt. We are all counted guilty because of Adam's sin. The Bible teaches that. Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, In this way, death is spread to all people, meaning all of his posterity, all of the future generations, because all have sinned. God thought us all as having sinned when Adam disobeyed. You keep reading in Romans chapter 5, 13 and 14. In fact, sin was in the world before the law. But sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is a type of the coming one. This means that uh, Adam, through Moses, death has come even before the law was given. It is saying that though their sins were not counted because they didn't have the law, they didn't have right from wrong on paper or or stone. And so some would say, no, we're not guilty because of Adam's sin because they had not had the law yet. There was no standard yet. So how can, between Adam and Moses, how can all of them be sinners and inherited guilty because of Adam if there was no law yet? That's a good question. But the writer of Romans says, well, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. What is the wages of our sin? It's death. And you go back and read verse 12. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. People died between Adam and Moses. You know what that means? They had inherited the guilt of Adam even before the law came. 
So you keep reading Romans 5, 18 and 19. So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. Thanks, Adam. Right? I mean, what you're thinking. Thanks, dude. I mean, go over there and, you know, and be the spiritual leader of your home and, and your wife. As one trespass, there's condemnation for everyone. So also, through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. Look at verse 19. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Here's the conclusion. The conclusion is that all members of the entire human race were represented by Adam in the time of the fall in the Garden of Eden. All human race was represented by Adam, our original father, in the time of the fall in the Garden of Eden. There's a word used for this. It's called imputation. God rightly imputed Adam's guilt to us. The term imputation is a doctrine of imputation. You can look it up. The word imputation is a Latin word. It's, a, it's an accounting word. It means to apply to one's account. So in accounting, you would impute money into someone else's account. Money is imputed into your account. Uh, when Amanda and I got married, there were two accounts. But her money was imputed into my account. It wasn't much, but, and what I had wasn't much, but all of a sudden I had more money in my account. Why? Because we were married. And it was imputed into my account. Well, Adam's sin, in the same way, was imputed onto us because of his sin. God looked into the future knowing we would be guilty. That's why Paul says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it seems unfair, doesn't it? I wasn't there. I wasn't there. I would have told Adam not to do it. That's what I would have done. I'd have been like, Adam, no, don't do this. He said not to, but bring me a piece too. I mean, that's what, that's what you know, our, our mind would say, I would have told him not to. I would have done it. So this is not fair. It's not fair. Why am I guilty? Because of Adam. I wasn't there. That was thousands of years ago. Why am I guilty because of Adam? This is unfair. And You might be right. I wasn't there when Adam sinned. I didn't get the choice in the garden. How can I be counted guilty? But you remember in verse 18 and 19, just as one trespass, there's condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there's justification. Verse 19, just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's the unfair part. So also there, through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Adam's sin is imputed into your life. And we think it's not fair, but if we think it is unfair for us to be represented by Adam, then we should also think it unfair to be represented by Christ. If we think it's unfair to be represented by Adam and his sin imputed into us, we must also say that it is unfair to be represented by Christ to have his righteousness imputed into us too, right? 
It's unfair for Adam's sin to be imputed into me from birth since I was not present at the time Adam sinned. But then it's also equally unfair for Christ's righteousness to be imputed into me at my spiritual rebirth since I was not present at the time of his death and resurrection. God uses the same procedure. It's no different. You keep reading in verse 20. The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, So also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Adam was our first representative who sinned and God counted us guilty. But Christ is the representative of all who believe in him and God counted us righteous. Here is how God has set up the human race to work. You have the human race as a whole with Adam as its head. Adam, the original forefather. People who are lost, separated, corrupted, they're cursed. That's the entire human race. When babies come out, when we are born, we are corrupt, separated, lost. That's how God has set up the human race to work. But then there is this new race of Christians, those who are redeemed by Christ, with Christ as the head. Now they are saved, righteous, accepted into heaven, forgiven. The question for you and I today, is Adam your head today? Or is Christ? Is Adam still your representative today to heaven? That you are cursed, defiled, corrupted, separated from God? Or is Christ your representative today? That you are saved, righteous, forgiven, inherited guilt. I know it stinks. It stinks, doesn't it? Doesn't seem fair. But not only do we have inherited guilt, but we also have inherited corruption. Inherited corruption. This means that we have a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. We have a sinful nature. Listen, you and I not only stand guilty before God, but we also have a sinful nature, which means we have a disposition to sin. It's your nature to choose wrong. That's just who you are. Paul affirms that before we were Christians in Ephesians 2, 3, that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's who we are. That's who we were before Jesus. We are by nature guilty. Our nature and our disposition is to sin. David says in Psalm 51, in verse 5, he says, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. David understood from the very beginning of his breath on this earth, he was guilty. He was a sinner. His nature, his disposition is to choose sin. It's not saying that he's the result of his mother's sin. As it says uh, in the latter part of verse 5, I was sinful when my mother conceived me. The context doesn't suggest that. You start reading in verse 4, Psalm 51, uh, excuse me, verse 1. Uh, all, the subject is him. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your uh, abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt, and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. 
Against you, you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. It's inherited corruption. We, are, we have a sinful nature because of Adam's sin. It's our tendency. You Listen, uh, all the parents in the room, you know this to be true because you have children. You don't have to teach your children to do wrong, do you? You don't. You don't have to teach them to do wrong. You know why? Because that's their tendency is to do wrong. Their nature's to do wrong. You don't have to teach them to do wrong. That's why all of Scripture teaches parents to teach their children to do right. You don't have to teach them to do wrong. They already know wrong. And you deal with it every day, right? They hit each other. They yell at each other. Call each other names. They lie to you. They're deceitful. They're little punks every now and then. You don't have to teach them to do wrong. That's their nature. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that's just who they are. And you know what? Your mama's saying the same thing about you. You had a tendency to do wrong. What this saying is your nature from birth is you have a disposition to sin. You know what this means? When given a choice, you will most likely choose sin. That's your disposition. That's your nature from birth. That's your nature. It's inherited corruption. You're corrupt the moment you're born. Paul, David says, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. You don't have to teach your children to do wrong. That's why Ephesians 6, 4 says, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The Bible says you have to teach them to do right. Parents, can I just share with you some information? Your child or teenager is not as sweet and loving that you think they are. They're out there running around like some hellions every now and then. And when that news gets back to you, don't you dare say, oh, no, not mine. Uh-uh. They wouldn't do that. Oh, yes, they will. They will, too. You know who it gets back to? Me and him. They're out there running crazy. Don't you think? Oh, oh! if they go there or do this or hang out with them, they're going to choose what's right because I've told them what's right. Well, that, you may have told them what's right, but their disposition is they're going to sin. That's why the Scriptures say, train them in the instruction of the Lord. We have, that's our tendency. We have a tendency to sin. We've received it from Adam. It means that as far as God is concerned, we are not able to do anything that pleases him. That's our tendency. It's our nature. In our sinful nature, we totally lack spiritual good before God. Totally lack spiritual good before God. We're not sinful in some parts and pure in other parts. But we totally lack spiritual good before God. Rather, every part of our human being, every part of our being is corrupted by sin. Every part is corrupted by sin. Our intellect, our emotions, our desires, our hearts, our heart being the center of our desires and decision-making processes, our goals, our motives, even our physical bodies, we are corrupted by sin. Every part of you and I are corrupted by sin. You see Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Romans will teach you a lot about sin. 
Romans chapter 7, verse 18. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. You know what that means? You, are in, you have an inherited guilt in your life. You are born guilty, born a sinner. Your nature is to do bad. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. You know what this means? You cannot please God. You cannot do it. You go to Titus chapter 1, verse 15. In Titus chapter 1, verse 15, to the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and conscience are defiled. Your mind is defiled. Your conscience is defiled. This verse keeps coming up over and over. Jeremiah 17, 9. It's been referenced a couple times. The heart is more deceitful than anything else. Oh, just follow your heart. That's what people say. That's what the world will tell you. Just follow your heart. Why? The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? This all means that when given a choice, your tendency is to do the sin wrong rather than do what's right. Scripture is not teaching that unbelievers can do no good in human society in some senses. You can do some good and according to the world's eyes. You can, you can go help in hurricane relief. You can help somebody give a shirt off your back. But Scripture does deny that we can do no spiritual good or be good in terms of relationship with God. So not only in our sinful nature we totally lack spiritual good before God, but also in our actions we, totally, we are totally unable to do spiritual good before God. In your nature, you can't do good. And in all of your actions, you're unable to do spiritual good before God. We not only lack any spiritual good, but we also lack the ability to do anything that will in itself please God. Not only that, but and we lack the ability to come to God in our own strength. Paul says in Romans 8, 8, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Wow. Wow. You know what this means? Those that are lost cannot please God. Speaking of bearing fruit for God's kingdom and doing what pleases him, Jesus says in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what Jesus says. For the, for the, so for the lost, the one whose Adam is their head, apart from God, you can do nothing. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it is impossible to please God. The old saying is, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. What? No. Yes, God loves the world because he gave his one and only son. But the Bible says the sinner, the lost, is unable to please God. It's not true in the way we mean it. Yes, God loves the world. But only because he desires to see, desires to see the world come to know him. He doesn't love the sinner the way he loves the righteous. John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. We could argue that from a human or worldly standpoint, people might be able to do much good. I think you could. You can make that argument. Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, or some translations would say they're like polluted garment. We can't even come to God in our own power. 
Jesus says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You know what this means? You're such a sinner and defiled and corrupt, you cannot even come to God in your own power. So what does this mean? This means we have an inability of our nature to please God, inability in our actions to please God. So do we have a freedom of choice? Sure you do. You can choose to do something. And then you do it. But apart from Christ, you do not have total freedom of choice because you cannot choose to please God. Why? You are in bondage to sin. So if we have the inability to please God, then our natural tendency is not even try to please God. If God, through the prompting by the Holy Spirit, listen, gives anyone the desire to repent and trust in Christ, he should not delay. He should not harden his heart. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so if there is a drawing from the Holy Spirit in your life to repent and trust in Christ, you should not delay, my friend. Do not harden your heart because this ability to repent doesn't come natural. So when prompted to do so, you must not delay, for this prompting won't last forever. It will not last forever. If God is drawing you to him, do not harden your heart. Because your tendency is to run away from God, but if he's drawing you to him, do not delay, do not harden your heart. Today when you hear his voice, do not harden. The last part of the article of faith. We believe in the fall of Adam in which he became corrupted, defiled, and guilty under the curse of God's law and that all his posterity have partaken of his nature by ordinary generation and are subject to the same penalties being under the same curse. Listen, some of you are thinking, I'm not that bad. I mean, my good outweighs my bad. I mean, geez, preacher, this is terrible. No, it's not me. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. We're bad. You know what? One author says, if someone speaks ill of you, be thankful they don't know the real you. Yeah. Someone says, well, you're, you're a jerk. Don't get mad at them. Just be thankful they don't know the real you. Because the Bible says you're corrupt. I'm just telling you what Scripture says, okay? Don't throw anything at me. Like, we have security. They're watching me. If you, like, meet me in the hallway, I'm like, punk, you told me I was corrupt. No, Jesus did. <laughs> That's a cue for security, right? they'll probably let you and that he nor they meaning you or Adam nor any of his posterity he nor they are able to extricate themselves therefrom by their own works you know what this means you can't get out of it this means in this sinful nature in this corrupt nature that you have in this defiled heart this defiled corrupt cursed state that you're living in you cannot get out of it. You are stuck. You're there. I'm intrigued by the terminology they use. I love the way they said, cannot extricate themselves. I, ben reminded me uh, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about this, of what this term extricate really means. It's used when uh, police officers or uh, firemen, EM, EMT, come to a scene of an accident. And the car accident is so bad, someone is trapped in the car and they cannot get out. 
and they are trying and trying and trying to get out. The other people are trying to get them out, and they cannot get out of the car. They're stuck. Either they're going to work themselves to death, they're going to die right in that car, or somebody's got to come to their rescue. And when they roll up to the scene, they use a piece of equipment called the jaws of life. That person has to be extricated from the car. Extrication. Under their own power, they cannot get out of their situation. So they have to be extricated from the wreckage. So they either give up, they either keep trying the rest of the time that they're there to their death, or they have to wait for help. This is the picture of you and me and our sin apart from Jesus. As much as we try, we cannot free ourselves from the bondage and enslavement to sin. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For you're saved by grace through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works, so that no man can boast. That's what it says. You know what this means? In your corrupt nature, apart from Jesus, you are stuck. And you can work and work and work and go to church and tithe and give all things to all the world, but you will still be stuck in that corrupt state until somebody or something comes to extricate you from that corrupt lifestyle. We're stuck in the seat of the car with no hope of getting out unless someone comes to our rescue. And then here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus. And God says, I love the world so much that I'll give my one and only son so that they can be extricated from the wreckage that they're in. And Jesus came and died on the cross and put into a tomb. And three days later, he was raised from the dead. And that all those who trust in him will be extricated from their wreckage. I almost had the actual jaws of life up on stage. Then I was told that the uh, extra pair weighed 150 pounds. And I thought, well, I'm not going to let them see me struggle on stage with that. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is standing at the side of your wrecked car, your wrecked life, and is wanting to extricate you from your bondage. Ephesians 2 Verse 9 says, not from work so that no man can boast. If you were in a car wreck and needed the jaws of life to extricate you or free you from the wreckage, in no way could you boast that you got yourself out. If the police officers, the EMT, the firemen come and they're wrestling with his jaws of life, your life is in danger and they know if we don't get this guy out, we don't get this woman out, she will die. He will die in that wreckage. And they work and work and work and crunch and crunch and crunch to rip the car away from you and to extricate you from that. In no way can you say, I got myself out of that. Look how good I am. In no way you spit in the face of the men and women that got you out of that car. That's why the Bible says, so that no man can boast. We're saved by grace through faith. 
in Jesus so that you cannot boast that you freed yourself or that you extricated yourself from your sin. So what about you? Is the Holy Spirit prompting you to repent and trust in Jesus today? Listen to me, friend. That prompting won't last forever. Hear his voice and do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I hate, I hate that we're sinners. I hate that. And I hate that we're totally corrupt in our sin. Lord, and I hate that there's nothing we can do to get out of that state. But Lord, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that when I was in the wreckage and the bondage of my sin, that I trusted in Jesus, repented of my sins, that God, you drew me to you. And I didn't harden my heart in that moment. I heard your voice and I responded. And God, at that moment, you extricated me from the bondage of sin that was over my life. Jesus came as the jaws of life to give me life. Lord, I'm thankful. Lord, I just believe there's people in this room. They're sitting in the middle of their wreckage. And they've been working and working and working to try to get themselves out of that wrecked car. Lord, they haven't got any further than the day they started. And God, because of the scriptures, we learned that we can't please you. We're totally corrupted and we need help. So listen, if you're in this room or wherever you may be, if that's you, do not harden your heart in this moment. Hear the voice of God calling. Hear God calling, come. Trust in Jesus today. Repent of your sins today. It doesn't matter who you are. You may have come to watch a child or just be visiting or out of town. I believe you're here for a reason. So that God can extricate you from your sin. Would you let him do that? In a moment, we'll stand and sing. Pastors will be down front, all across the front. Come and talk with one of us. We'd love to pray with you. The Bible says to come and repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus. Father, we are guilty. We stand guilty before you. But Lord, we're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful that in our corrupt state, Jesus saved me. But Lord, I believe there's people in this room that they are in that corrupt state. And I believe Jesus is standing there with the jaws of life ready to extricate them out. God, may they not harden their heart. May they not turn away from the only one that can save them from that wreckage. Is that you this morning? Would you come? Father, we pray, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.